Good evening. Good evening, good evening. It is wonderful to see this crowd, perhaps even better to hear you. It is an enthusiastic and uh, lively crowd tonight, and we're really happy to have you here. My name is Winston Gooden. I'm the Dean in the School of Psychology, for those who are, of you who aren't aware. And I want to welcome you tonight. Unfortunately, our president and our provost are away, and so I'm welcoming you on their behalf. They would like me to let you know that uh, this is the premier um, event in the life of the School of Psychology, our Integration Symposium. And this year, we are very, very pleased with our speaker and our topic and are very, very excited of, about what is to come. We hope that you find Fuller a very warm and welcoming place, and we invite you to sit back, enjoy yourselves, and um, learn a lot get prepared for the work that you are all coming to be prepared to do. We want to start off with prayer, so if you would bow your heads, uh, we'll get going. God, we, we thank you for the call on our lives. We thank you for the many places to which we are sent. We thank you for the sensitivity of those who care for us, on this journey that we take. And now tonight, as we come to hear, to learn, to study, to be inspired, we pray that your spirit will hover over us, that you would strengthen our speaker, that you would open our minds, that you would fill us with your rich wisdom so we might be better prepared to do your work. We pray this in the name of him who was sent by you to be our savior. Amen. Let me invite Dr. Erickson to come and introduce our speaker. Well, I am just thrilled to be able to introduce Dr. Kelly O'Donnell to you. Kelly is a friend, a, a visionary. He's been a psychologist for 23 years, and for 22 of them, he and his wife, Michelle, who is also a psychologist, graduates from Rosemead School of Psychology, for 22 of those years, they've been living overseas, living as missionaries, serving missionaries. What an awesome model that is for us. But what I want to say as we introduce Kelly to begin tonight is when I thought about who Kelly was, the word prophet came to mind. I believe that Kelly is a prophet. He's always kind of out ahead. He's got a really great grasp and picture of the overarching frame of what's going on, and he's not afraid to say the hard things. We are really, really blessed to have him with us. This is the first time the integration lectures are about missions and mental health. The first time we're integrating the School of Inter Intercultural Studies with the School of Psychology, officially. What an amazing thing to ask a prophet to come and speak to us for this first time. Thank you. Come, Kelby. Uh, I'd like to share with you three areas over the next two days. And uh, before I do that, I'd like to just give you a little bit of background about what we do and a little bit about our family. And then we'll launch into the first topic of this evening. 
Uh, Michelle and I and our family live in Geneva, right by Geneva, Switzerland. If you ever go that way, please feel free to stop by. And uh, in a nutshell, what we do is we provide and we develop supportive services or flows of support to mission and aid workers. These are our two daughters. Ashling is on the left, Erin is on the right. Ashling's at a boarding school for the first year, not too far away, three hours away, a missionary kids' school. And then Erin is at Tufts University in Boston. Our work in member care, three broad areas. We do training. Uh, one example was uh, what I loved was being able to sit cross-legged by the Nile River, teaching and learning about stress management with Ugandans and other Africans. With the Nile River there, shoeless, just kind of very informal talking. There's so many different ways of doing member care and practicing psychology. This was one of my most uh, interesting memories. It was great. Another thing we do, in addition to training, is consultation. One example would be a child abuse case in India, where from a Western North American background perspective, the intervention was very much go contact the police about what this predator was doing in your village. But of course, you don't, well not of course, but you don't do that necessarily in certain contexts because the child can be even more vulnerable to criticism, to, ostrac to being ostracized and so forth if you go to the authorities. And so it creates an ethical dilemma and a practical dilemma too about how do you intervene and really help someone, for example. So training, consultation, also we do a lot of writing. One example would be uh, some of the materials in Chinese. We don't write these, but we've had people translate them and added some English case studies, audio files, www.chinamembercare.com. We try to find areas where there's gaps and needs for member care, literature, uh, relevant resources. And so uh, we'll be, I'll be mentioning some of these as the evening progresses. Other things which we've done and continue to do more common, assessment, crisis intervention, research, coaching, therapy, counseling, practitioner affiliations, bringing, helping to bring people together from different backgrounds in different regions of the world so that they can talk about the needs of mission personnel and work together, cooperate. So really, whatever training you're getting, whatever training you have in the mental health, pastoral care type field, those are the types of services that are very relevant to mission and aid personnel around the world. We focus primarily on what used to be called the 1040 window, unreached people groups. So that would include large portions of northern Africa. That would include parts of Asia, China, India, and places like that, where usually the poorest of the poor and people who have limited access to the Christian gospel uh, reside. Some of the places we've gone, uh, this was in Turkey. We were doing a team building session, uh, uh, training, I should say, team building training, and then providing short-term counseling to a group of uh, mission workers that were there for one week. So we meet where people gather, and then we provide some intensive care. Uh, this is in Senegal, where Michelle went with our oldest daughter and was providing member care consultation, and then uh, having a go at some primary health care with uh, Talibé street boys in Senegal. This is our daughter learning some of the um, ways to help some of the kids. And this was in, uh, where was this? This was in... Valore, India. This is uh, one of the largest, this is the largest Christian hospital in India, training institution. And these are nurses in training, and some of them are long-term nurses as well. And we were talking about organizational dysfunction and the need for, in addition to the specific professional skills that you develop in nursing, the health skills, how do you survive organizational life? How do you deal with the context in which you're providing your services? 
and it was kind of new for them, but they really gravitated towards it. It was great. So we travel around the world uh, regularly. We are in all types of venues, see all kinds of folks. We work with teams. We work individually. And uh, we've been doing this for 22 years. We have three topics in the symposium. And the first one is tonight, staying healthy in difficult places. We'll take a bird's eye view of the member care field, how it affects mission organizations, aid organizations, and how people stay healthy and organizations stay healthy. Tomorrow, we'll look at the area of health and dysfunction, systems and personal dysfunction, systems and personal health. And then the third topic tomorrow will be uh, developing guidelines for good practice. That will involve it looking at ethics and human rights in member care and how we provide our services ethically competent. Is that when we start talking about member care needs of mission personnel and aid personnel, people start talking. Because people are sincerely wanting to know, how do you survive? What do people need to be able to work in areas of where there's complex humanitarian emergencies? How do you work with street kids day in and day out and see the anguish and the desperation? What do you do to survive? And how do you as a caregiver, professionally trained or non-professional, uh, help them in contexts like that. These challenges get people talking. The second point I want to illustrate here, or see this illustrate, would be um, we need to use some kind of uncommon strategies sometimes to be able to help people. If you really want to accomplish something and score a goal in terms of our member care services, we have to think a bit divergently, I think, think a bit outside of the box in order to accomplish what we're trying to do. Okay. One way to look at what's going on out there in the world is to see there's a lot of problems out there without passports, which is a term used in the United Nations. Problems don't know national boundaries. It's like influenza, it's like viruses. They just travel all over the place. And we, as Christians and followers of Christ, have many, many challenges and many, many opportunities. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight in terms of Christian mission. Tomorrow, we'll look at promoting health and managing dysfunction, principles for staying healthy and safeguarding workers and senders in light of personal, personal and organizational dysfunctions. And then the third topic will be developing guidelines for good practice, ethical principles, human rights commitments, upgrading the work in member care and mission and aid. So three topics we're going to be getting into, all very much cutting edge in this field. Uh, two sides of the member care coins that we'll be emphasizing in the next two days. Um, Think, of terms, think in terms of the types of currency that are needed to do member care well. Think of it as types of coins. A coin is only valid if both sides have an imprint on it, right? And here's three specific coins that we need to develop and use in our currency to do member care well. The first is we don't just provide services, but we need to develop services. We need to go beyond what is available, create in community psychology terms alternative, alternative settings, use non-professionals, use professionals, whatever we can. We develop and we provide these services. Second, support and management. It's just not about providing psychological support, but also what's come out in the literature and practically is we need to manage our personnel, our aid workers, our mission personnel well. Good leadership, good management practices, safeguards, policies, procedures are very, very important. And in addition to the psychological mental health services we provide. Then third, and this is something for all of us tonight especially, how can we help one another connect with the member care field internationally? And what could some of your contributions be now and in the future? Two sides of one coin. We want to connect internationally and purposefully, and we want to contribute in meaningful ways for us. And that's some of the greatest challenges, I think, for us here. Um, two areas, another side, another two-edged coin, two things that cry out for input, 
are the various calamities that exist, natural disasters, hurricane, hurricane Katrina-type things, tsunamis, and so forth, but not just calamities that the media covers, but what would be called the neglected emergencies that are out of the limelight, that, don't, that aren't resolved so quickly, where the issues of like donor fatigue sets in and people stop giving money and attention and media coverage, and they go on and on and on, festering. So what can we do practically to help intervene there with our skills and so forth with natural calamities? Another area has to do with conflicts, not just the ones, again, that make the headlines, but things like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which was actually an international war for many, many years. And I believe about 5 million people have died, about 5 million displaced peoples as well. This particular uh, uh, picture comes from Afghanistan. This uh, little girl, around age 12 or 13, uh, drew a picture, actually a little younger, 11 perhaps, uh, drew a little picture of what happened to her legs. She was in Afghanistan, she was playing in a field, and saw a really neat toy that was shiny on the ground. She went to pick it up, and it was a mine, of course. And then she writes a little illustration, a little caption to illustration, and it says, I did this and I will not be able to walk again. So landmine victims and many practical things like that. How do we intervene? How do we help with trauma and support the efforts of groups like the United Nations, other NGOs? Those of you that are in the mental health field, pastoral care, and so on, I think, I'm just jumping ahead a little just to let you know where I'm going. I think in addition to your solid training that you'll get in your programs, continue, please, to be thinking in terms of how can you cross cultures? What can you learn culturally? What types of competencies can you develop and fluencies in different cultures and understanding diversity and so forth? Crossing disciplines, psychology, mental health, family and therapy, uh, human resources management, areas like that, and get uh, skilled in information there. Crossing sectors. What about the humanitarian aid world? What about family transitions? What about learning from the military and adjustment struggles from the military and many other sectors that are doing similar things to help humanity and humanity's distress? And then finally, at a more personal level, a willingness to cross deserts and comfort zones if we want to minister effectively. So all of this stuff is great, the academic training, the professional skill sets that we develop, but ultimately, I think, if we're going to do member care well, there will be personal deserts and obstacles where we're going to have to dig very, very deep call out to God, and get social support from true friends to help us minister in some very difficult places, crossing comfort zones and deserts. Okay, let's talk briefly about our parish. Let's talk about our catchment area. What are we looking at here? Currently in the, the world, there's about 6.84 billion humans, about 2.27 billion are Christians, 1.4 billion Muslims, about 1.1 billion Roman Catholics, about 385 million Protestants. Out of the 6.84 billion humans, about one out of seven live in slums, urban slum dwellers. Now, I don't know if you've ever lived or worked in a slum environment, but it is not easy. I haven't. I've been there. And it's like, I don't know how people do this. If I could just say a bit editorially, a lot of times we say missionaries are, there are heroes, Aid workers are our heroes. Well, yes and no. My heroes are those who survive in slums, the poor, the needy, 
the children, the very few resources that we have. These are those who are really surviving and whom I also admire. Um, a few more stats. Currently, there's almost 12 million national workers. These would be pastors, youth workers, Christian workers in different countries. Uh, there's about 458,000 foreign missionaries. That includes Protestant and Catholic. Uh, many Christian, quote, workers don't actually fit into these two broad categories of national workers or foreign missionaries, referring to tent makers, uh, Christians who have a call and want to help share their faith, but they're primarily going to another country for economic reasons. They're relocating and stuff like that. These people need support, and they're in strategic places where they could help make a difference uh, with their lives and backgrounds. About 91% of all Christian outreach and evangelism targets other Christians. So the question is, what are we doing with our resources? How are we prioritizing our finances, our personnel? What might you do in terms of your priorities? Who is getting the lion's shares of the church's resources? Is it the unreached or are they fellow Christians? That's a good question. The growing majority of Christians in the global south and the relative decline in the global north North American, okay, let's look at the stats for uh, this continent. There's about 42,000 long-term missionaries. There's about 150,000 short-term missionaries under two years. And there's about 1.5 million people from the United States that go on some type of short-term mission trip from like two days to two weeks or so every year. So missions is a big thing in the United States and more and more around the world. There's a lot of people that are involved in talking about it. The catchment area of the parish is huge, and they have certain needs in order to survive and to be effective. North Americans help support about 88,000 non-North American missionaries. So demographically, that's a huge shift, going from sending North American missionaries to supporting non-North Americans who are uh, ministering. Well, here's an interesting statistic. And by the way, all these stats come from uh, Barrett, Johnson, and Crossing, the 19, uh, sorry, 2008 International Bulletin of Missionary Research, January. Annual church embezzlements around the world exceed all the costs, the cost of all foreign missions around the world. I know, it's amazing, but in light of Madoff and other serious scandals, we can get a better sense of how serious this is, what's happening to the money. A couple more stats in terms of the catchment area here from People in Aid. In 2000, there were an estimated 37,000 non-government organizations around the world. This is almost 10 years ago. And there were almost uh, 19 million workers, volunteers, paid staff in these non-government organizations. It's huge. These people have needs. They have a need for support. They need to find ways to support one another for their long-term effectiveness. Well, this is us. This is our, we have cards up here. If you want more information or anything like that, then you can reach us here. Okay. So that's a bit of an introduction. And I'd like to just jump right in now to staying healthy in uh, difficult places. We have three goals tonight we want to do. We want to look at uh, historical notes on member care. And I've only presented this once or twice before, uh, not because it's not important, but because it's only been more recently, I believe, when a critical mass of information and progress and stuff like that has been able to come together where we can review some of the milestones over the last 20, 30 years or so. So we'll look at historical notes. We'll look at some adjustment issues and research for the challenges of workers. 
and then we'll look at some future directions. So two other things to consider, as I mentioned before, how can you, how can we connect and contribute to the international field of member care? And secondly, can you personally identify two or three resources that we cover tonight that you're interested in, you might want to review and find ways to apply them to your life and work. So be thinking in terms of three to five things that really challenge you and interest you that you could pursue later. In 1910, there was a very famous conference, very important conference in Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, World Conference on Mission. And this is one of the uh, very key uh, citation from a letter that was written to the Christian churches after this conference, saying that the providence of God has led us all into a new world of opportunity, of danger, and of duty. And that really struck me as being relevant not just then, but relevant now, relevant for each of us in light of what is going on in the world. What are some of the opportunities? What are some of the dangers? What are some of our duties that we must consider? Duty and danger is everywhere, not just on the mission field, but in our local communities, because there is a continuity between our lives and our struggles anywhere we live and life on the mission field. It's not like, oh, the missionaries out there, they're so stressed, they need our help. Well, yes and no, but what we've experienced here, how we practice counseling, helping people, can be very transferable in other contexts too, especially the more cross-culturally experienced we are and oriented as well. So problems are everywhere. Problems are on the mission field. And, uh, whoops, no, I don't want to do that. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to go really fast in the next 10 minutes or so through some of the historical milestones that have helped shape this field of member care. Okay, why don't I do this? Everyone has bad days, but some people have bad years, and others have bad lives. This was the recent earthquake in Pakistan. And just another view of the types of situations that were called into to help. This is a particular uh, apocryphal passage from the book of Sirach that's really helped my wife and I personally over the last 22 years to sustain. Because there were times when we have wanted to give up and thought, I just don't want to do this anymore. People don't understand or whatever. My child, if you were going to serve the Lord, be prepared for times when you will be put to the test. Be sincere and determined. Keep calm when trouble comes. Stay with the Lord. Never abandon him, and you will be prosperous at the end of your days. Accept whatever happens to you, even if you suffer humiliation. Be patient. Gold is tested by fire, and human character is tested in the furnace of humiliation. Trust the Lord, and he will help you. Walk straight in his ways, and put your hope in him. I hope that this is an encouragement for you wherever you are tonight in your walk, and I hope that many of you will be able to develop additional skills and additional opportunities to work with aid and mission personnel as well. Over the last 20 years especially, there's been a special ministry within Christian Mission Aid that's developed, actually a movement, and uh, it's called Member Care. Let's look at some of the roots and some of the main developments of this field. Okay, in terms of the 1960s and 1970s, this was an era of pioneers of uh, practitioners. Most of them were in the mental health field. Uh, Link Care started in 1965 and has consistently offered inpatient, outpatient facility, uh, care to Christian workers. Wycliffe Counseling Department in Huntington Beach started in 1968. Marjorie Foyle, a British physician and psychiatrist, was working in South Asia. And then Joseph Stringham was also working in South Asia as well. In 1970, uh, Sorry, let me just keep going here. Okay, 1970, Joseph Stringham, the psychiatrist in South Asia, published two very important 
articles in Evangelical Missions Quarterly, both dealing with the mental health issues and needs of mission workers. He identified both external and internal challenges, such as culture shock, being disillusioned with others, issues with children's medical care, and so forth. And then those were external uh, challenges. And then more internal things like dealing with uh, feelings of resentment, sexual issues, marital struggles, dishonesty, uh, guilt, spirituality issues, trauma, deprivation in earlier life, impact on your work, motivation, and so forth. But what's key about this is uh, mental health practitioners writing and openly talking about the needs of Christian workers. And that might not seem like such a big thing now, but just think that was almost 40 years ago. And to be able to talk about that openly and to get a spotlight on that in a publication like EMQ, Evangelical Missions Quarterly, was, was tremendous. Mental health practitioners in particular who ventured into mission and aid were frequently faced with a dominant belief that the desire for special or additional support might mean that Christian workers were being unspiritual or weak, not trusting the Lord enough. Tucker and Andrews in their article, Historical Notes on Missionary Care, say this, Mission societies held high the ideal of sacrifice. Strong faith in God, it was reasoned, was the prescription for a healthy mind and spirit. Self-reliance was the mark of a missionary, tempered only on dependence on God through prayer. This is something I certainly learned firsthand when I ventured into an unreached people area, sorry, in Mexico. This is not going to, sorry. And I went down there at age 19 without a lot of training being a mission, a mission worker, and I went through significant adjustment struggles in my short-term uh, outreach to the point where I did not even want to go back in to do any kind of mission work. My first experience was pretty stressful. I kept a stiff upper lip, but nonetheless, I uh, didn't actually go back until God really pulled me back there about five years later. This is a Nahuatl people group, and by the way, when I was going to Rosemead in the late 70s, 80s, um, I was wrestling regularly with, should I be a missionary? Should I be a psychologist? And eventually it started to come together with the help of some mentors, some people that had paved the way, those people from the 60s, 70s, and early 80s who were mental health professionals providing services uh, to mission personnel. That was wonderful. It was very helpful. Um, so I had a heart for mission, and that's a story in, itself, in and of itself, and a heart for psychology. Uh, these are two pioneers and practitioners, um, Dave Wickstrom out of Rosemead, one of the early graduates, and then Dr. Dr. Wickstrom and then Dr. John Powell, who started in 1980 the Mental Health Admissions Conference. If you ever have a chance to go there, it's in Indiana. It's in November. This is its 30th year, and the theme this year is on resiliency, resiliency for Christian workers, and it's wonderful. I was privileged to go there in 1983 for the fourth one, met a lot of folks that were far, far more advanced than I was and had a lot more background in psychology and mission, and it was very encouraging. The 1980s, I'm jumping ahead from the 60s and 70s to the 80s, conferences began to develop in the United States especially, mental health and missions, um, the personnel uh, conference, which was the IFMA, EFMA, and then ICMK's International Conference on Missionary Kids. Organizations were forming, there were more practitioners coming on the stage, there was more training, there were more publications. But keep in mind, though, that the actual integration of psychology and missions, bringing them together, was still pretty much in its early stages at this point. It was still a tenuous integrative leap for many in missions. In the 1980s, 
Three very important conferences took place. The first one was in Quito, Ecuador. The next one was in Manila. The third was in Nairobi. And it had to do with issues for missionary kids, educational issues, family issues, and so forth. And as we mentioned earlier in a question and answer time with some of the, the students, grad students here and all, was that it seemed that the entree to member care, the entree to the broader needs of the mission community, families, individuals, was through the children. It was safer, easier to talk about the needs of kids, and that's where things really started to develop more, coming together internationally to discuss the needs of kids, and then it broadened into other issues as well, too, community issues, screening, selection, families, pathology, and so forth. 1987. Dr. Foyle, a psychiatrist in South Asia, wrote a landmark book called Overcoming Missionary Stress. This was later published in 2001, updated to include issues, not just for Westerners, but for issues for non-Westerners, Indians, Asians, and Latinos, and so, so forth. She went around interviewing people from different countries and included uh, the global input from the Global South into, in terms of what it means to be uh, ministering to mission personnel and their issues. 1988, uh, the first book I did uh, with Michelle. Sorry, I can't go back here. Mm. Okay. <coughs> Let me just continue if I could. I'll go back to that picture, but it was uh, helping missionaries grow. And before we went overseas, my wife and I said, what does the research look like? We're going to go overseas and minister effectively. We've got to do a bit of homework because there's no book out there that brings together some of the major research, publications, concepts up until that date. So we helped put together 50 articles, mostly North American, very mental health oriented because that was the state of things at that time to help ourselves and to help others. It was called Helping Missionaries Grow. Uh, the development of member care really has its origins in the biblical admonitions to, quote, love one another, John 13, 34. Uh, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, teach and admonish one another, and so forth. It's not like this is anything new, necessarily. Christians and Christian workers, for better or for worse, have been trying to practice these relationship principles down through the centuries. However, what is new, what's going on now the last 20, 30 years, is a more organized attempt all over the world to develop comprehensive, sustainable member care approaches to help Christian workers who are ministering cross-culturally. That's what's new, but it's founded upon Scripture and the biblical admonition to love one another, care for one another. Those are our roots, and that's the foundation. Uh, 1992, uh, edited a book on missionary care, counting the cost for rural evangelization. And at this point, we and others started to think in terms of what is really needed in this field? What else needs to happen? What are some of the gaps? And we needed to more intentionally come together and identify people that are providing member care and coordinating our services and not just doing our own thing, as it were. So there's a need for co uh, comprehensive and cooperative endeavors. In the 1990s, member care became more formally defined. This is, you might say, a standard definition that's still being used 15 years later. It's the investment of resources by sending groups, service organizations, and workers themselves for the nurture and development of personnel. It focuses on every member of the organization, including children and home office staff. It includes preventative, developmental, supportive, and restorative care. The core part of member care is the mutual care that workers provide each other. Workers receive it, they give it. Connecting with people in the local and host community is also key. Member care seeks to implement an adequate flow of care from recruitment through retirement, so it's inclusive throughout the whole mission life cycle. 
And the goal is to develop resilience, skills, virtue, which are key to helping people, personnel stay healthy and effective in their work. Member care thus involves developing both our inner resources, like perseverance, stress tolerance, and providing external resources. Team building, logistical support, skill training. I know that's a whole lot to throw out at us tonight, but each of these phrases could be impact, which we don't have time, and it's been written about in very different, uh, different articles and different sources. But that seems to be the core understanding and foundational definition of this thing we call member care. We've talked about the mission community a lot in the early 90s. In the aftermath and during many wars, natural disasters, it became increasingly apparent to aid organizations such as the International Federation of the Red Cross that in addition to the food, clothing, and shelter and infrastructure we need to create or bring to, to victims, we need to help them with their psychological issues as well too. People were struggling emotionally, and there was limited response at that time. So parallel to what's going on in the member care community, the mission community, the humanitarian aid world is developing something else. In addition to that, they started to have to deal with uh, the need for their delegates, what we call missionaries or mission personnel. They call delegates often. And the conflicts, the flash that they uh, send their delegates to, flashbacks, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder type symptoms, Many, of peop many people, workers came back exhausted, feeling helpless, confused, and so the need to support the staff got on the radar screen finally with professional psychological services, briefing and debriefing especially. And in Geneva, a program was started in 1992, I believe it was, to help their staff and debrief them as they came back. Okay. Also in the 1990s, there was an increasing focus on the de developing partnerships among uh, Christian organizations, as well as on Christian member care workers. Let's connect together, let's affiliate. Uh, the first ones happened in 1993 in terms of member care for the Middle East and one for North Africa. Uh, this book on attrition was published in 1997. Why do Christian workers leave the field? And we mentioned earlier that each year around 5% of the mission population leaves the world for, leaves uh, work for various reasons, some preventable, some not preventable. This book was landmark. Uh, going back to the humanitarian aid world, the Code of Good Practice by People in Aid came out in 1997, revised in 2003, dealing with principles and responsibilities for senders. If we're gonna send our people to difficult places, we have a responsibility to provide for them, to care for them, to support them. There's security issues in some of these areas of conflict and physical threat and danger, and there's psychosocial support issues to nurture them, to care for them, to help in their training and development. This is landmark, and there's copies, I believe, some of you have gotten, and I think there's some available out there. It's also available for free online, too. But this was also landmark because this represents a, consens a consensual attempt to bring people together, organizations, senders, to say, this is what we're going to do. Here are seven core principles we will follow to ethically support and manage our staff well. Uh, this is in front of the, uh, the home where uh, C.S. Lewis lived in Oxford. And in 1998, uh, this was sort of a fledgling attempt and a very effective attempt to bring together some of the major member care practitioners, theoreticians, and so forth. And we talked and dreamed about having an interagency, international network and group of people involved in member care. And from these early beginnings, a network began to uh, spread out and stretch. That's the late uh, stretch out over the globe. That's the late Dave Pollack on the far right, if you happen to know him. 
uh, my wife, Dr. Ken Gamble, and others, Dr. John Powell on the far left, and many other wonderful folks too. So the 2000s, the 2000s was a period of internationalizing knitting the net. In 2000, Dave Pollock and myself put together a five-sphere model of member care, which maybe you've seen. But at the core of this model is the person of Christ. We call it master care. And emanating out of our relationship with Christ is uh, caring for ourselves, caring for one another, mutual care, the responsibility of senders, churches, sending churches and organizations to care for their personnel, and then specialist care, eight categories, eight special areas that need, the focus, that need to be focused on in order to care for people responsibly, including things like crisis care, issues for families, pastoral input, psychological care, team building, and so on. Then the fifth uh, sphere, the outside sphere, sphere refers to network care, and that reflected the ongoing reality of networks of practitioners, networks of supportive resources developing that we need to avail ourselves of. And then in 2002, the third book uh, that I edited was called Doing Member Care Well. I think there's a lot of copies here if you don't have one. This is 50 uh, articles from people around the world, Latinos, South Asians, Hong Kongese, uh, people from Asia, Europe, North America, writing about what they do to help support their staff. This is in uh, six languages, and it's online in some languages for free. Uh, others you have to buy. And then one final thought in terms of history. This is 2000 at the Mental Health Admissions Conference, and about 25 practitioners and folks came together again to compare notes and to dream, to dream about what it would look like to further develop member care to establish networks, supportive resources to help the 450,000 Christian workers full-time and short-term workers and national workers and so forth around the world. This was a landmark event and just wonderful. Uh, four things that are going on in terms of the member care field. Uh, there's a flow of culture, you see. You recognize these streams of supportive resources. By that, uh, I'm referring to organizational culture, organizations accepting increasingly the fact that people need help. It's okay to struggle, and let's get help for ourselves. Uh, second aspect of this flow, flow of concepts, values, principles, tools that help guide and shape the member care field, more books, uh, more conferences, more articles, more things online. Flow of caregivers, more and more people with various skill sets helping out. And then finally, flow of connections, internet uh, connections, new technologies, opportunities to meet face-to-face. -face. All these things are helping to facilitate the development of member care. Okay, the second part of the lecture tonight has to do with um, listening to our global voices. What are some examples of what people in the A4 world are saying and feeling? By A4, uh, we refer to people that are from Africa, starts with A, Asia, uh, Latin America, or America Latina, and then the Arabic Turkic world. So what are some of these people saying, not just the North Americans, or just not the Europeans, or Australians, or so forth, but what are some of the issues for these folks, the majority world, the global south? Um, one reason why this is important is reflected in one of the concluding comments from Yael Danieli, a psychologist who writes in the humanitarian aid world. She says, national staff, okay, A4 people, for example, do not receive the security and support afforded their international colleagues, including remuneration and insurance, nor are they respected for their credentials, experience, and knowledge of local culture. Most of all, when missions leave or evacuate, they stay, often endangered to themselves and their families. Indeed, 
international protectors and international providers report feeling outrage and incompleteness and guilt when locally recruited colleagues and their families are left to this fate. So again, the question is, to what extent are the wealth of the church's resources prioritized in going towards those people that are often in positions where they can provide lots and lots of um, services, ministry, and so forth. Often they are neglected. And I think as we're considering what the world needs and what Christian workers need, I think we're going to have to reprioritize where these resources are going. Here's a few voices uh, that I'd like to listen to tonight, voices from Africa. I'm a humanitarian worker living in a location in Africa that is in prime need of help and missions. I've experienced many types of stress as I have worked in various mission programs. The most sustained tension that I have experienced has been related to the urgency and the amount of work to be done in a potentially explosive social and political environment. The challenge here is not only to produce expected results quickly under tense and sometimes risky circumstances. The challenge is also to deal with the constant worry about the security and health of those within my immediate world and where I, my family, and friends fall within that world. I have another line of sustained tension that comes from belonging and yet being apart. I belong to those who are helping and to those who are being helped, but I'm neither an expatriate nor a beneficiary. There is a tension between my life as a national with blood and other deep ties to those around me and my life as an aid worker coming from the outside to help those threatened by death. It is as if I am being followed by a ghost which constantly reminds me that the needy person, for example, the displaced person in the transit camp, could have been me. Let's shift over to Asia, to South Asia, India, from a medical doctor. The recent deaths of many young missionaries in different parts of the country have been very shocking, more so because the causes of the deaths are malaria, enteric uh, fever, and other common treatable and preventable causes. Today, when medical science has advanced so much, it is sad that these young budding lives have been lost through what could have been ignorance, uh, neglect, or delayed improper treatment. As a health professional, I would recommend that every missionary sent to the field, especially to the remote areas, be given a proper training in basic health and be oriented to the health realities of their locations, in addition to the other areas of preparation. This might seem like a no-brainer to us, of course, but many people, frankly, in their sincere zeal to follow Christ and willingness to sacrifice, cut corners. They might not take their malaria tablets or go with a malarial net. They might put themselves in areas where road traffic accidents and other hazards can affect them and maim them seriously. So this is an important addition, which in many places is not the health aspect being included in basic training even. Going to uh, China and the House Church movement and back to Jerusalem movement, the past 50 years of suffering, persecution, and torture of the house churches in China were all part of God's training for us. He has used the government for his own purposes, molding and shaping his children as he sees fit. That is why I correct Western Christians who tell me, we have been praying for years that the communist government in China will collapse so Christians can live in freedom. Well, instead of focusing our prayers against any political system, we pray that regardless of what happens to us, we will be pleasing to God. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, 
but for a stronger back to endure. Interesting perspective. I think we in the West have it the other way around. Let's help you lighten your load. They see it as differently. I think a balance is in order. And then, uh, because of lack of time, I need to move on from this uh, Voices from the Arabic-Turkic World. Three Ps of attrition. I mentioned this before. Sorry. Basically, uh, about, let me just say, about 3% of the mission workforce, actually a little less now, recent research, leave for preventable reasons, premature reasons, and likely permanent reasons. That's a lot of people. 12 to 15,000 people estimated every year leaving for reasons that could have been stopped if they had their right support, right intervention, and so forth. These are some of the reasons. It's in the article that you'll have access to for free online uh, shortly from Fuller School of Psychology. Um, what I need to do is jump ahead uh, from the research, because I only have a couple minutes left. And I want to um, just talk a little bit about future directions. Where is this field going? How might you fit into that? How might your local church fit into that, your agency, your, your university, or so forth? Future directions from member care. Uh, a key scripture that's been very meaningful to me is the concluding remark of Christ in Matthew chapter 13 at the end of the kingdom parables where he says, every scribe of the kingdom, every scribe who wishes to, become, wishes to be a disciple of the kingdom uh, brings forth, it's like the rich man that brings forth out of his house things that are both new and old, new and old treasures. So as we talk about future directions, we're talking about treasures, we're talking about what are some of the old tried and true resources? What are some of the things that are used to help support mission workers? What are some of the new things, the cutting edge things, as the world, uh, some of the needs in the world continue to unfold, or as the world unravels even? What are some of the types of resources, things we need? And here's just uh, a few things, again, how to connect, how to contribute. First thing I want to point out is the utter need to further support the local church in terms of their mission uh, enterprise. It's not just a matter of specialist agencies anymore in many countries, but local churches are sending people out for better and for worse. This particular book by Neil Perello, which was written, I believe, in the early 90s, has been translated into 20 languages. It provides practical helps and suggestions for what churches can do to provide moral support, logistic support, financial support, prayer support, communication with their workers, and how to help them when they return for reentry. Uh, treasures for sending, uh, sending churches. Just again, the note that there's a lot of non-traditional people going, people going in non-traditional ways, I should say. Tent makers, business people, even internationally displaced people who are Christians are in context where they could do a lot. If we could support them further, uh, that could be very helpful uh, in terms of their Christian witness. Those that minister over the internet, new ways of doing things, supporting them, backing them up. Okay, another area is how do we support our leaders? CEOs and stuff, they are under so much stress. Here's an excerpt from Doing Member Care Well from uh, K. Rajendran in South Asia. It's 12.45 midnight. I toss in bed pleading for sleep to overtake me. We are asking many questions. These questions meander through my mind and nearly overtake me. I almost panic. It is now 2.30 a.m still awake. Many CEOs and other leaders have many similar sleepless nights. We expect miraculous things from our leaders sometimes, such as this. 
Another area of focus, relief and development workers. Remember I said earlier that as of 2000, the stats, there were about 19 million people involved in uh, NGOs, non-government organizations. They are in key places to help support people that have been exposed to calamities, natural disasters, human-made uh, emergencies, and so forth, conflicts. And how do we support people through debriefing, through counseling, and so forth? How do we equip them to help others too? so that, as the Red Cross says, so that people uh, don't just become passive victims, but rather active survivors. And that's really key. And so intervention at key times is big. I'm just sorry about this. need to uh, move along here. Uh, many of you have this in your packets, or there's some outside. It's a packet put together by the internet, or a brochure put together by the International Federation of the Red Cross to help their workers deal with traumatic stress and to monitor their stress levels. Uh, there's a questionnaire at the back with 13 questions where you can self-assess and then discuss it. Uh, you might want to take this yourself, regardless of wherever you are in your training or life, to see how you're doing in terms of traumatic stress. Another area has to do with persecuted humans, the persecuted church. In the words of John Amstutz in Humanitarian, Humanitarianism with the point, the place of hospitality and kindness toward followers of Jesus Christ is no small matter, particularly those who are being persecuted for their faith in him. It is time to speak clearly and fully of the essential need of intentional humanitarianism, that is, member care, towards those who have chosen to suffer loss for Christ in these nations. So how do we support people who are discriminated against and abused and have their rights violated as a result of their faith in Christ and witness? Very important area. Um, I encourage everyone to get a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Read it, reread it. And uh, it just deals with uh, respecting the dignity and rights of all human beings. And it's foundational for the work of aid workers and I would argue Christian workers as well too. Uh, a couple more treasures, then I'm done. Special support for those from the A4 regions, people from Asia, Africa, Arabic, Turkic world, and so forth. We want to encourage them and support them. Uh, this website, uh, resources in Chinese, there's other resources in Arabic, Bahasa, Indonesia, Spanish, Korean, and so forth that have uh, been developed. This is an interesting quote, part of a declaration from Philippine Christians, mission people, about member care and their commitment to Filipino missionaries. We will foster a culture of care among our churches and mission organizations, compliant with the model and mandate of Christ to love and serve each other. We will endeavor to raise awareness about member care that would catalyze the Filipino church to harness capacities in order to ensure the flow of care towards those who were sent out. Member care is international. It has been mainstreamed. It is not just North American. It is not just mental health. But it's broad, it's interdisciplinary, it's international, it's taken root, and there is this core biblical foundation for it, and that core is to love one another. This is an example of a brilliant resource which reflects some of the needs that are out there. This has been translated into 40 languages in an African context, healing the wounds of trauma, how the church can help for people to put together this together, including a psychiatrist in an African context. This is also in some of your packets. 
This is a particular um, CD which uh, focuses on culture and diversity, and it's, it's brilliant. It helps to sensitize you to cross-cultural issues as you provide services. Resiliency is a huge direction to go towards. What we want are just not soft, weak people, but we want robust people that are willing to sacrifice and are able to weather the ups and downs of cross-cultural life and the challenges of serving Christ. This was outside of our house about a kilometer away. We were driving by here in France by the Swiss border, and I just stopped the car. I pulled out the camera because I saw something in the distance that just got my attention. And when I looked closer, it was something which for me reflected this, this verse as well as the idea of resiliency. He will lift me up on a rock. My head will be lifted up among my enemies around me. These are the types of personnel that we want. People who understand their weakness, their need for social support, their willingness to sacrifice, but who are willing to hold their head high and to be counted. Dr. Erickson, sorry, can't quote your researcher. I want to, but um, that's why I was going with this with resiliency and some of the things you've done. Um, right, okay, good member care. It helps us do some incredible things. And so where we're heading in all of this is providing member care in a culturally relevant way, a comprehensive way that fits for the diversity of workers that are there. There are all kinds of problems, all kinds of needs, all kinds of issues. How can we practically support them and work together? Above all, the core of what we're trying to do is to put into practice the trans-ethnic group, the trans-ethne practice of fervently loving one another. Member care is a reflection of that. Our love is the final apologetic. Love is the ultimate measure of the effectiveness of our member care. Thank you. Tomorrow we'll be looking at dysfunction and health and mission context, and then we'll be looking at ethics and human rights principles and their relevance for um, the member care context. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Um, thank you for that overview, for that history, and I'm, I'm truly grateful for your role in all of that. Um, you've shared that history with us you know, with passion, tad bit of humor, compassion for the mental health workers, and I'm grateful 